data was wrong all the time. And I was, you know, really frustrated by that. I would wake up to this barrage of emails from unhappy customers, unhappy executives, unhappy internal stakeholders saying, WTF, why is the data wrong? That's Bar Moses, the founder and CEO of Monte Carlo, a data observability platform that's valued at more than a billion dollars. Monte Carlo is on a mission to eliminate what it calls data downtime, that wake up in a cold sweat experience for data teams when something's broken and the numbers are all wrong. It's a huge problem that can cost companies millions. And after discovering there were no solutions, Barr decided to build one. This problem was so painful and so meaningful to people that I just couldn't believe a world where a solution to this didn't exist. Not surprisingly, Barr is very data-driven, and on this episode, she shares how she used the scientific method when launching Monte Carlo, validating her idea through hundreds of conversations and launching two other companies at the same time to see which one had the most traction. I think the thing that helped me was being very hypothesis-driven and asking myself, what do I need to believe in order to believe that this can be, you know, a meaningful company where I can actually make an impact in the world? Welcome to Crafted, a show about great products and the people who make them. I'm your host, Dan Blumberg. I'm a product and engagement leader at Artium, where my colleagues and I help companies build incredible products, recruit high-performing teams, and help you achieve the culture of craft you need to build great software long after we're gone. Bar, you really grew up in data. Your dad ran a lab that you spent a lot of time in. I'd love if you could start by just talking about those roots in science and the path that led you to where you are today. Yeah, for sure. My dad is a physics professor, and my mom is actually a meditation and dance teacher. So I had the pleasure of sort of, um, you know, li- living in both worlds. I remember growing up with my dad and playing a lot of kind of guesstimates games, if you will. So we would sit in a movie theater and try to guesstimate how many people are in the audience. And so as an eight-year-old, that was a lot of fun. I studied math and statistics, and my favorite course um, was actually mathematics. So using sort of mathematical algorithms to construct magic tricks. And so I think growing up, kind of the the joy of of data and, and numbers and math and everything was sort of something that was really present in my life. Growing up in, in Israel, I was drafted to the Israeli military. I was in the Air Force working on an uh, intelligence unit. Uh, again, using data, but for very different reasons. Um, and obviously, you know, introducing the concept of diligence and what it means to deliver very high quality data where the stakes are incredibly high and the data is mission critical. You know, later on in, in my career, actually I wanted to follow in the footsteps of my dad. And so thought that I was going to academia and actually realized that it's really not for me and sort of did a a strong 180 and went to consulting, actually. And consulting was kind of like a business school for me because I got to work with Fortune 500 and many other organizations on their data transformation. Prior to, to starting Monte Carlo, I was at a company called Gainsight, which created the customer success category. The reason I joined was, one, I was excited to help create the category, but two, bring some of the quantitative background to customer success and actually thinking about how can you use data to predict churn, how can you use data to drive increase in revenue, um, how can you actually use data for, in reality for businesses. You wanted to start a company, and, and so you ended up starting three companies just to figure out which one worked. What made you land on Monte Carlo? Yeah, I mean... You know, I was working at Gainsight, and a lot of what I was focused and excited about is how do you bring data to back up sort of customer success and customer relationships. And this was, you know, circa 2015, 2016. So organizations were just, you know, we called ourselves data-driven, but I'm not sure we actually used data. Just 
counting how many customers we had was like hard enough. You know, I think that these were years when we actually started to use data in board decisions uh, or, for example, you know, in daily reports that our executive team was looking at. Um, and in some cases, also in reports that we had in our product that our customers were using. And as a person responsible for that data, the data was wrong all the time. <laughs> and I was, you know, really frustrated by that. You know, I had like one job, get the data right. And the data was wrong. And I would wake up to this barrage of emails from unhappy customers, unhappy executives, unhappy internal stakeholders saying, WTF, why is the data wrong? And not only was I sort of the last person to learn about data wrong, data being wrong, I was also then swept into a multi-day or multi-week process to try to figure out why it was wrong and whose fault it was, et cetera. And being really frustrated by that, you know, sort of turning to my engineering counterparts and I was like, oh, they have all these fancy off-the-shelf solutions to make sure that their products are reliable. And yet we're here flying blind, hoping that someone will tell us the data is wrong. And so we actually ended up building our own solution hacking it together, which allowed us to being the first to know when data breaks and also being able to communicate why and what's the impact of that. And it worked so well that we actually implemented it for some of our customers. And I remember leaving that thinking, huh, like how does this product or solution doesn't exist? If there's anyone out there in the world who's actually trying to use data, they're probably being hit with similar problems. How could it be that there's nothing like this? And so when I left Gainsight, I sort of remembering back on that experience and asking myself, you know, can that actually be a real viable product and a real viable company? But I'm actually not a big risk taker. And so being very risk averse, I wanted to make sure that, you know, if I'm leaving my cushy job and getting others to leave their cushy job, you know, there better be something behind what I'm doing. And so I actually decided to start three companies in parallel with the idea of actually trying to see if there's a real problem here and now and a problem that's big enough and material enough to build a real company around. While she developed the ideas for her companies, Barr needed to flesh out what it would mean to solve data downtime, so she started gathering intel. Literally getting on a call with hundreds of people and asking them, do you have this pain point? What does that look like? Could we work together on a solution for this? What does a solution look like? Where would you get started? What are the main risks? And throughout the process, actually gain confidence that this problem that we later coined data downtime was so painful and so meaningful to people that I just couldn't believe a world where a solution to this didn't exist. And how else did you do to identify that there really was, you said your risk averse, you wanted to be sure that this was the right bet to make. It was through was talking to lots and lots of people. Were there also experiments and things that you ran in the early days? Oh yeah, I was as hypothesis driven as you could be. It's a very surreal experience. You know, you're you're in your room alone and you're like, let's start a company. Also, by the way, 99.9% of startups in the world fail. And so you're doing something that's by definition going to fail. And it you wake up every morning ready, eager, and excited to do that. So living in that world is a little weird. I think the thing that helped me was being very hypothesis driven and asking myself, what do I need to believe in order to believe that this can be you know, a meaningful company with very happy customers where I can actually make an impact in the world. And actually laying out the hypothesis. So for example, you know, with data downtime and data reliability, we had to believe that data is going to be more important than it is. Remember, this is, you know, four years ago. It actually wasn't obvious that data was going to be this big. I mean, I think today you could argue that there's, you know, no space that's more interesting than, than data. But back then, you know, this was before the rise of Snowflake and Databricks, before the big acquisitions of Looker and Tableau, before the rise of roles like data engineering, machine learning engineering, like none of that existed. And so 
we're making a pretty sizable bet here that we think data will become more important. So that's one thing that I needed to get conviction on. The second thing I needed to get conviction on is, is this problem meaningful enough right now? And so I cold called hundreds of people to ask them, you know, people who don't owe me anything, they don't love me, they don't don't care about my success. They'll give it to you straight. Exactly. And ask them, what are the top problems that are keeping you up at night? And the very visceral problem of I wake up in the morning and I don't know if the data that I'm responsible for is going to be right or if someone, some of my stakeholders are going to be angry at me. It was very emotional for them and very present here and now. And people had real tangible examples of how that's impacting not only their their jobs, but also their businesses. And companies lose material money about related to these data issues. It's not uncommon for companies to lose, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars because of one data issue. And so that became really clear to me that that is a real problem here and now that we can help solve. And then the third question, or the third sort of hypothesis that I needed to build a conviction on was the how meaning that there is actually a way to solve this problem. And that is something that was very controversial because many people in the data space told us every company's data and every company's data structure is totally different. And so you're never going to find patterns and you're never going to find a way to kind of identify data downtime issues. And our hypothesis was that they are all wrong and that in the same way that in software engineering, you know, every application is different and, you know, people build very different products, but there is a coherent set of metrics. There's a certain framework that people look at to define uptime and reliability of software. And we believe that we could develop a similar framework in data as well. It doesn't have to be perfect. It's not going to solve all the data problems under the sun, but it will give people the tools and the confidence in their data. And that's what we were after. And so going through those three hypotheses is really what kind of like gave us the conviction to get going. I love it. I love the scientific method. So how does data get messed up and how does Monte Carlo work to prevent it from being wrong? I would say data has always been wrong. Just because people make mistakes, data breaks, pipelines break, you know, systems are brittle and they're error prone. And so by definition, data would be wrong. That has always existed. However, two things have changed in the last decade, I would say, that made this problem bigger and more important. One is data is actually used. Uh, Five, 10 years ago, it was not really used. The second thing is that the way in which we manage, process, transform, analyze data has become a lot more complex. So in the past, you had one you know, Oracle database, you dumped everything into there and you call it a day. Today, you have five different data teams, six different engineering teams are all working with the data. You know, you have multiple, you know, data lake, data warehouses. You have several ETL pipeline frameworks. You have multiple BI solutions and data can go wrong anywhere along that chain. And so if you're really thinking about the reliability of your data, you have to include you know, not only where data breaks, but also who's responsible for that data at that point. And the problem is just becoming a lot more complicated. And now how does data actually break? In speaking with sort of hundreds of folks, we basically collected all the different reasons for why data goes wrong. And we classified those into five key pillars. Those are freshness, volume, schema, quality, and lineage. Very briefly, the first one is freshness. So data going stale or being wrong because it's just not up to date is probably one of the top reasons why data is wrong. And this could be, you know, for example, if a company is dependent on third-party sources for their data and that data just isn't arriving on time. The second is the volume of data. So it's not uncommon for the job to be completed, everything is fine. 
you know, but only half of the data was actually sent over. The third is schema changes. So we talked about different teams working together on different data pipelines. It's not uncommon for some team upstream to make a change in the data without actually understanding the downstream implications of that. And so often someone will make a change upstream and that will totally break things downstream. The fourth is quality. So this is, you know, sort of at the field level. So maybe the most common example is if folks are using credit card numbers and suddenly there's a letter in the credit card field. And the fifth pillar is um, lineage. And so when I speak about lineage, I'm talking about both column level and table level lineage and overlaying um, data health information on top of that. And the power of lineage is that it helps us answer the question of if something broke in the data, who's impacted by that? Meaning who are the downstream consumers that are impacted by that data issue? And then vice versa, upstream, what is the root cause? Monte Carlo built its product around those five pillars and focused the solution on three key categories. The first is detection, meaning building alerts and notifications to the right person at the right time based on data issues. And so it's not only you know detection and detecting the problem, but also detecting who's the right person that should know about this and what is information that they need at the same time in order to determine whether this is a real problem or not. The second is around resolution. Uh, so data teams oftentimes spend weeks or months trying to identify the root cause and resolve the problem. And oftentimes that has to do with looking at, for example, query logs or changes in your DBT models. All of those things can give you clues as to what is the root cause of the particular data issue and reduce the time to resolution from weeks to hours or minutes. And then finally, prevention. So really strong data teams that they also actually reduce the amount of incidents overall because they are building pipelines more thoughtfully in a way that creates less chaos and sort of downstream implications. The critical part of Monte Carlo's approach is looking at the stack as one big living, breathing system. Oftentimes, traditional data quality solutions really focus on one part of the stack. Data can break anywhere. And so I think a very important part of observability solution connects to that stack end to end. And so we have integrations um, to each of those. And we're able to bring all of that data into one place to have a unified view of your data health. So you can understand at any moment if something's breaking where. And then I would say, you know, the, the data teams are thinking more and more in the concept of data products. That is very new, and I think that's a great best practice that we're taking from engineering. And that means, you know, looking at data quality at a data product level. So, for example, something that we just released is a data product um, dashboard, which allows you to bring together different data assets that are all contributing to a particular data product and understanding the health of the data assets at that level. And I think that's pretty revolutionary in how we think about managing data. Now, Monte Carlo's clients are reimagining how they do data. One of our customers is JetBlue, you know, national airline. Maybe you flew recently and was wondering, where's your suitcase and will it ever make it on time? And will you be able to make your connecting flight or whatnot? And so actually JetBlue's data team manages all that data, both for support for their passengers, but also for running their operations. Uh, and before working with Monte Carlo and having their own data observability solution, they sort of had a team that had to have multiple people staring at the data at all times to make sure that the data is accurate. 
for me personally, that's a terrifying thought. Being in their shoes, I had to do the same, right? And so now with data observability, they've introduced contracts between teams and expectations and SLA, service level agreements, for when should a particular data asset be up to date and what is the accepted level of freshness and timeliness that we can have. And you know, making sure that every single alert, every single data incident is being addressed. And so they're running it with a lot of diligence. Um, so it's pretty cool to see sort of the, you know, the journey of a data team throughout that. Can you share a bit more on, on Monte Carlo's journey of how you've iterated the product? For sure. You know, when, when we started the company, this was um, just me and my co-founder, Lior, who, um, you know, his background is engineering and security. And when we started the company, I was pretty clear on what the problem is, who the person is who we're going to help, and what does the solution look like. And I was like, okay, Lior, like, why don't you, like, go code the solution and let me know when you're done. And, you know, we'll, we'll go work with customers and everything will be great. And he was like, hell no, are you kidding me? I'm not going to build anything without a customer. Uh, That's just not simply how we do that. Yeah, totally. (laughs) (laughs) And actually that has carried forward with us as a company today. So we don't build anything. We don't like go into the dungeon, build something, come back and say, ta-da, you know, here's a solution. We build everything hand in hand with with customers. But at the start of the journey, you know, you're just two people with an idea. You have to get customers excited enough to work with you to give, they're really taking a chance on you. And so I think for us, we were able to find folks who this problem was so visceral for them that they were able to give us access to their data and for us to build with them. And actually the first thing that we built was schema changes. And I remember being so skeptical. I was like, you know, folks can get their schema changes in their data warehouse pretty easily. I'm not sure why, why they'd want that from us. But I was so wrong. People, we were like, I just need that like daily report of schema changes. If you could just just send it to me in, in email, I don't even care what the format is, just email it over. And the feedback from them, they were like, this is amazing, it's saving my life. That was so powerful. So I was completely wrong, you know, give credit to the team and to our customers. But I think, you know, we every single step of the way, we learn from that. So we will we would build something, I think the first prototype we built in maybe six weeks and put it in, in the hands of our customers really quickly and just try to see if they would use it or not. Another example of something that I was wrong about was I always wished I w- would have a data health dashboard. And so in the very early days, one of the first things that we did was created this sort of overview of data health. And turned out I was totally wrong because it's really hard to have a, a strong data health dashboard without all of the pieces that are leading up to it. So if you don't have a strong handle on freshness, volume, schema, quality, that dashboard is kind of useless. Now, I think the data health dashboard can be really helpful and actionable for teams. And so we are seeing people today use it, but I would say that like a data product dashboard was totally useless four years ago when I thought it was really cool. So I think it, you know, it has a lot to do with sort of timing and, and the readiness of your customers as well. At the end of the day, it's really our customers who know the answer to everything. I think by law, we have to talk about generative AI at some point in this conversation, <laughs> so maybe let's do that now. We're consulting to a lot of companies that are trying to figure out their generative AI strategy, and they come to us, but I'm curious when they come to you, what are you telling them about you know, how should they approach it and, and what are the underlying issues that they might need to address first before they get to the really sexy generative AI stuff that's you know, been making so much news the past you know, six months or so? I think you're right. I think a lot of data leaders are under pressure right now to deliver 
um, on generative AI. And I think we're sort of seeing different reactions to that. I would say there's teams who are definitely already experimenting and up and running, and others who I think are trying to understand what use case to solve. And I would say that latter problem is a lot harder for data teams to, to think about, you know, how do we actually deliver value to the business? In general, the way that I think about generative AI is, you know, whether we make really big advancements in the next 18 months or in the next 18 years, it is making data and data observability even more important because the number one problem that folks have is, I don't know when the last time you asked ChatGPT for a question and it was hallucinating or giving you the wrong answer and you're like, ah, this is useless. And so in those instances, that's when customers and folks really think about data reliability and data observability and how do you make sure that the data that you're surfacing to your customers is accurate. You know, we're really excited about this trend. I think it's great, and I think there's a ton of open questions for how do people actually turn that into real value. I think from an industry perspective, I'm seeing two areas where I think we will see the most disruption. The first is in, in the BI layer. So there's tons of startups in this space already, which basically, again, make it easier for folks to, in natural language, ask and get answers about data. Like, and then the second area that I think will get disrupted is uh, data engineering productivity. So if you look at sort of what Copilot is doing for engineering, um, I think there's an opportunity to do that for data engineers. And so, for example, at Monte Carlo, we have something that helps data engineers write SQL queries or fix their SQL queries, um, which is working quite nicely. And so I think that's sort of second area that's interesting. If I have... Any advice, first of all, my advice is not listen to advice. I think that's advice that I got early on. Run that, an experiment. That I think that's your advice, right? Yeah, exactly. I think run an experiment. And then also start with the why and have a really clear understanding of what's the value that, that you're going to add or what's a particular use case that you're going to solve. I think there's a lot of folks who are sort of tinkering with things, but actually defining how am I actually showing value with this and who's the customer that I'm solving the problem are those that I'm sort of seeing success with. Yeah. What if you look, you know, into the, I don't know, nearish future, is there something that today sounds like science fiction that you think is gonna be totally commonplace? You know, I think the there's a question of whether the entire modern data stack will be disrupted. And I think that's a very interesting question. Uh, meaning, you know, would we transform, aggregate, process data in a totally different way? And I do think that could happen. I don't think that's imminent. Maybe that's in 10 years from now. Even today, answering pretty basic questions about data is, is hard. <laughs> with generative AI or without, right? For very many reasons, you know, maybe the data is inaccurate or maybe you don't have all the data or maybe, you know, you're not sure how to translate that into actionable insights. There's lots of different reasons why it's hard. But I do think if we're doing our job well with generative AI, then it'll be a lot easier for us to deliver on the promise of data. And I do think that will happen. I'm, I'm optimistic about that. What's next for Monte Carlo? Great question. For us, you know, our goals have always been from day one, working with as many customers as possible and making them extremely happy. And so those are kind of our goals for eternity that will never change. The other thing that, you know, we're really sort of focused on in Monte Carlo is creating the category. Data observability didn't exist three to five years ago, but um, it's existing today, which is really exciting. And so I'm really looking forward to data observability becoming more and more important. I think it's still in its early days today. And when I look at observability and engineering, you know, there's huge companies like Datadog, for example. I think one of the most iconic companies of the decade, sort of in, in engineering. And, you know, we're really excited for what that means about the potential for what Monte Carlo can be and what data observability uh, will be. 
Amazing. Thank you so much for your time. This has been fascinating. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Dan. This was fun. That's Bar Moses, and this is Crafted from Artium. If you've got an idea for software that solves big problems, let's talk. At Artium, we can help you build great software, recruit high-performing teams, and achieve the culture of craft you need to build great software long after we're gone. You can learn more about us at thisisartium.com and start a conversation by emailing hello at thisisartium.com. If you like today's episode, please subscribe and spread the word because the data is clear. A regular dose of Crafted does the body good. This is amazing. It's saving my life. Mm-hmm.